Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I hope 2022 is treating you well, and I should also wish everyone an early Happy Valentine's Day. On today's show, we're going to talk about threats to democracy both domestically and abroad. We'll discuss the threat of a Russian invasion in Ukraine and how this fits into Vladimir Putin's larger objectives. And we'll also talk about recent developments in the United States around issues of election subversion and misinformation. Joining me to unpack all this is friend of the podcast, Jim Swift, currently senior editor at The Bulwark. Jim has previously worked as a tax staffer for members of the House and Senate and on the staff of the Weekly Standard magazine. Jim Swift, thanks for coming back on the podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about Russia and the ongoing threat of an invasion of Ukraine. Um, From your perspective, what do you think Putin's objectives are here? What do you think he's trying to do? Yeah, um, I'm not sure that Putin is 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 dead set on directly invading Ukraine. Um, you know, Russia is not doing so well, and uh, the EU is fragile. Um, but uh, you know, that doesn't mean war is not the same as conflict, right? We're definitely conflict is a 100% certainty. Um, whether it's economic conflict uh, with a swift system, no relation, the, the financial inter- you know, interchange uh, network uh, that you know, we could use to sanction Russia, uh, we could see uh, that and that would be like a nuclear financial war with Russia, really. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you look at how Russia inter- tried to interfere in 2016 and 2020 uh, with its psychological operations. And uh, there are a lot of people who live in the areas that border Ukraine uh, who do sympathize and maybe even, depending on their age, view themselves as kind of Russian. And uh, people like strong men. You know, we see this in the Republican Party. You saw it with Russia. You see it in a lot of places. I mean, you saw it in Germany, of course, in World War One and World War II. Um, and uh, Russia demonstrating how strong it is and having Ukraine in the state that it's in uh, is, is basically like daring them to make a mistake. And if they make a mistake, that could lead to destabilization of Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is not part of NATO. Uh, I mean, they've taken part in NATO exercises. Maybe they'd like to be part of NATO. Um, But uh, you think back to Vietnam and Korea and the domino theory and communism. It's almost that in reverse, is that Putin is trying to play with the certain non-NATO state actors to screw with NATO. And I mean, we did have a president, Donald Trump, uh, who hated NATO and didn't believe in that. Um, I'm, you know, a bulwark neoconservative evil, evil warmonger, and I do believe in NATO, and I do believe in strategic alliances. Um, but what we're seeing right now is, that, like, Putin, it, 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 it's like a bad game of risk against your drunk uncle who's a belligerent. And <laughs> that's Putin, and he's doing a really good job. Um, and... Right now, we're at this precipice where we don't know what's going to happen next. Is it going to be actual war or is it going to be, you know, a conflict of, you know, sanctions and and other sorts of things? Um, But when it comes to trying to destabilize things and throw the world out of balance, Putin is unfortunately doing a good job. And Applebaum actually wrote a great piece about Putin's objectives and what he's trying to do uh, in The Atlantic recently. It's called The Reason Putin Would Risk War. She says, quote, Why would Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, attack a neighboring country that has not provoked him? Why would he risk the blood of his own soldiers? Why would he risk sanctions and perhaps an economic crisis as a result? And if he's not really willing to risk these things, then why is he playing this elaborate game? End quote. Appenbaum says that uh, Putin is sometimes incorrectly described as a Russian nationalist, but she says he's an imperial nostalgist. 
The Soviet Union was a Russian-speaking empire, and he seems to want to recreate a smaller Russian-speaking empire within the old Soviet Union's borders. She says that Putin is shaped by his personal history. He felt very unsupported when he was in East Berlin with the KGB when the Berlin Wall was falling, and they kept contacting Moscow, and Moscow wouldn't communicate with them, and they were frantically trying to figure out what to do, and they were fearing for their lives. So this experience really shaped him. Democracy, popular movements came to be seen as really dangerous to him. Today, she says, Putin blames the U.S. and the West for stoking anti-authoritarian and democratic sentiment in Russia, which would threaten his power. He believes his enemies and the world's democracies are in bed together. And so he supports extremist groups, anti-democratic forces, and he spreads disinformation in Europe and in the U.S. Applebaum says, quote, Putin is preparing to invade Ukraine again or pretending he will invade Ukraine again to destabilize Ukraine, to frighten Ukraine. He wants Ukrainian democracy to fail. He wants the Ukrainian economy to collapse. He wants foreign investors to flee. He wants his neighbors in Belarus, Kazakhstan, even Poland and Hungary to doubt whether democracy will ever be viable in the longer term in their countries too. Farther abroad, he wants to put so much strain on Western and democratic institutions, especially the European Union and NATO, that they break up. He wants to keep dictators in power wherever he can, in Syria, Venezuela, and Iran. He wants to undermine America, to shrink American influence, to remove the power of the democracy rhetoric that so many people in his part of the world still associate with America. He wants America itself to fail." End quote. She goes on to say, quote, Lenin, Stalin, and their successors wanted to create an international revolution to subjugate the entire world to the Soviet dictatorship of the proletariat. Ultimately, they failed, but they did a lot of damage while trying. Putin will also fail, but he too can do a lot of damage while trying, and not only in Ukraine, end quote. All right, Jim, let's switch gears a little bit here, but still stay abroad. Let's talk about what's going on with people like Tucker Carlson and people like him who are falling in love with authoritarians. Tucker took his show to Hungary and he's fawning over Viktor Orban. So if, from your point of view, what's what's going on here? So people people like Tucker or another one who is a lesser known person is a guy named Sorab Ameri, former opinion editor of the New York Post. Um they are infatuated with Viktor Orban in Hungary. And it's, I'm trying to think of a great analogy here and there isn't exactly one, but if you think of like your typical like college hippie with a Che Guevara shirt um, and picture them as college Republicans who have Lego man hair, that's Tucker and Sorab, even though <laughs> Tucker is an heir of a frozen food fortune in uh, a multimillionaire, and Sorab Ameri is a former Marxist, atheist, and now traditional Catholic a political refugee from Iran. Um, you know, it's just sort of one of these things where, like, they're hipsters of they were into X before everyone else was. And the reason why they like it is, you know, I, I, I made the joke friendly fascism earlier, and that's sort of an homage to. Uh, the longtime gadfly, New Hampshire um, presidential candidate, Vermin Supreme, uh, you know, who wants to mandate brushing your teeth and everyone gets a free pony. Um, but it's basically the same thing. Uh, they've just fallen in love with someone. And, you know, you see this on the right, too. I mean, look, this is not something that is is isolated to the right. Uh, on the left, there's love of AOC, there's love of Rashida Tlaib, there's love of Bernie Sanders. But on the right, we're seeing this uh, domestically, you know, with, we saw it with Trump, we're seeing it now with Ron DeSantis, and uh, abroad, we're seeing it with Viktor Orban. Um, and uh, that's not been something historically that has been something that has been deployed by Republicans and conservatives is love of foreign leaders outside of maybe Israel. Um, and well, so just in tandem with the authoritarian streak going on here, falling in love with authoritarians elsewhere is just deeply troubling. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a tiramisu of horribleness. <laughs> it's just, it's layered, you know, it's, it's layered and they think it's all delicious, but it's, 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 it's very scary. And, you know, I mean, I guess we're lucky that, you know, 
we there aren't more. Um, but uh, it's. I mean, Tucker's it, got a huge audience, but. Yeah, well, and, and very few advertisers, but it's but it's but right. it's scary. Oh, you know, oh, he's pro life. You know, uh, you should see what they do over there. And right. anyone who literally spends any time to do like a bare modicum of research would see that Hungary is a horrifying place that you would never want to live. And I realized my cadence there was almost Carlson esque. <laughs> <laughs> but uh no you, like it's it's very scary and um i never worked with tucker back when he was at the weekly standard that predated my time but uh the people that i know who worked with him they barely recognize him and uh i don't think it's an act i don't think it's a bit i think these people literally believe what they're saying and uh you should be very scared about it and if anyone in your life listens to them you need to speak with them because it's really messed up so you think you think guys like tucker and jd vance have have truly transformed i don't know about jd vance i think tucker has uh i think josh mandel who's my first boss in politics you know in 1999 back in cleveland have and they believe the stuff that they're saying um i think jd vance is just a really bad actor So one of the biggest reasons that our democracy is in the state that it's in is due to misinformation and disinformation. And you wrote a great piece about something that happened recently in Maitland, Florida, that I want to get to that I think really displays this really well. It's often described as a post-truth moment in America where feelings are becoming more important than facts for millions of people and increasingly people bend reality to their beliefs and dismiss facts, dismiss expertise. And a major cause of all this is the rise of talk radio, the internet, cable news, partisan media outlets, social media, etc. Now, we're all hardwired with the problem of confirmation bias. We all have it. This is the tendency to look for information which makes us feel good, avoid information which doesn't, and modify negative information to make it more palatable based upon our beliefs and our identities. Um, I love the way social psychologist Jonathan Haidt puts this. He says, quote, when the facts conflict with sacred values, almost everyone finds a way to stick with their values and reject the evidence, end quote. So confirmation bias is kept somewhat under wraps when you only have a limited number of sources of information and most of them are credible. Today, Americans have easier access to factual information and more of it than ever before. I often tell my students, you know, take your iPhone out of your pocket. And, you know, if you travel back in time 100 years or 200 years and you showed this to somebody from the past and you'd say, show me your best library. And then you could sort of laugh and say, this little device in my pocket has exponentially more information than your best library. Right. So we have we have more access to information and and just more of it, more quality information than ever before. The problem is Americans have a difficult time identifying what is reliable and what isn't, given the explosion in unreliable sources on television, on the web, etc. So um, in class, I often I often put it this way to my students in the movie Jurassic Park. The dinosaurs don't pose much of a threat to patrons when the security systems are working. And then Dennis Nedry deactivates them. And then we all have to hold on to our butts. You know, Um, the guardrails in America have indeed been deactivated. So Americans have difficulty now differentiating legitimate journalism from biased partisanship. We're all locking ourselves in ideological silos. We're becoming addicted to these low quality news sources and it's destabilizing our democracy. And the story that I mentioned, and again, it's linked in the show notes, it's linked in the show description um, about what happened in Maitland, Florida, I think is a great example of this problem of misinformation and disinformation and how our current information ecosystem is just ripping off the guardrails and unleashing confirmation bias to do its worst. So, uh, Jim, tell us about this story about Maitland, Florida. Yeah. And, you know, um, a local reporter in Orlando called, reached out to me and he goes, are you paying attention to what's going on here? And my parents live in Florida. They live in like Naples. But I was I, I told him, like, I got to confess, no, I, Florida politics is not something to pay attention to other than like Ron DeSantis, because, you know, he's on the rise and everyone, there's a cult of worship around Ron DeSantis. And he goes, well, the interesting thing is there's this extended stay hotel in Maitland, Florida. And, uh, you know, around here, like we, you know, you think about Immokalee, Florida has always been a big social justice thing with tomatoes and everything else. Florida is a big agricultural state. And he goes, 
Laura Loomer, who is, for listeners who don't know, this far-right fringe conspiracy theorist who is running for Congress in the 12th District, if my memory serves me correctly, um, she's friends with Roger Stone. She filmed like two tour buses full of basically brown guys getting out to go into this hotel. And it just took fire on the far right fringe social media as if they were all illegal immigrants. And Joe Biden is just so vengeful that he's going to go to Maitland. If anybody knows where Maitland is and could point it out on a map and just drop off, you know, 200, one, you know, one, 200 illegal immigrants. Uh, Maitland, yeah. Florida, the weak underbelly of the American immigration system. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, but, uh, and it was just like purely racist, right? And so this, this thing goes viral on social media on the far right, and it makes its way into the kind of more Twitter viral mainstream of, of the right, because Laura Loomer is famous for being banned by Twitter and chained herself to the building. And uh, this congressional candidate who's a state rep named Sabatini sees this and it's posted by some Montana radio host who is famous for one of the biggest dot-com failures. Um, and he shares it. And this guy was a Claremont fellow with Charlie Kirk and, you know, uh, the, the guy who had the sex scandal and everything. And without even doing any research, you know, he goes, obviously, these are all illegals. And then it turned in and spiraled into this protest where people were bringing Let's Go Brandon flags and they were protesting. Granted, these guys were out doing jobs that, you know, these retirees from Long Island weren't willing to do, um, you know, who live in the Orlando suburbs. Uh, but they were there and uh, it quickly became apparent because of the reporting of local reporters is that these guys had H-2A visas and they're mostly guys. I mean, agricultural labor tends to be male, uh, but the H-2A labor program is is a very public matter of record. You can find out which company is doing it, whether it's an orange farmer, a strawberry farmer, a nursery, or, you know, kale, who knows? But if you're getting, you know, the H-2A program is heavily, heavily, heavily regulated. Um, you can do it for three years and then you have to go back and then you can come back. It's not one of these sort of amnesty things, but it was all about the fact that these guys were brown and, um, the, the current occupant of that seat in Florida 7th is Congresswoman Murphy, as I mentioned earlier, who's on the January 6th committee. And she's sort of a moderate blue dog dem. And uh, she announced she was retiring. So they have this kind of newcomer who's running. And I, you know, I assume other people are going to jump in the race on the Democratic side. But there are nine Republicans, um, many of whom are crazy uh, and a few of whom promoted this story. And I don't know, I like the Republican Party to me, historically has been against illegal immigration. I mean, if, forgetting Ronald Reagan, who had that whole amnesty thing, of course. Uh, but, you know, from a verbal and rhetorical standpoint, has always been pro illegal immigration. And what the end result of this whole thing in Maitland was, was this Claremont fellow state legislator taking his pal Laura Loomer's video and putting it on blast and then getting a whole bunch of old white Floridians to threaten brown people in Maitland, Florida, who were legal immigrants. And, you know, uh, that was the kind of pain, uh, picture I was trying to paint, which is that's sort of the GOP now is that they're so nationalist. And Christopher Heath, the, the reporter in Orlando who, who flagged it for me and I, I gave him credit for, it, did the reporting, found out that they were legal. And he went and talked to those folks and the cognitive dissonance was so bizarre. Like you would, he, he, he wrote about, oh, well, don't you know that they're here illegally? Well, no, this protest is actually about illegal immigration, <laughs> you know, because no one can be wrong. Right. Right. And then other people who I would, you know, are probably just as racist, but a little bit more honest uh, said, well, I don't know if they're legal. And that's that's the, the thing that Sabatini went with. But the thing that I thought was like the icing on the cake of irony was he didn't even show up at the protest to like glad hand with the rubes. Uh, he was up in Tallahassee with this guy who runs this MAGA Whole Foods in Naples called Seed to Table. 
And uh, this guy was a January 6th insurrectionist. He paid for two buses to send people to the, the insurrection. He was there with a megaphone. He flew there on his own private plane. And he's also been busted by the Department of Labor for employing illegal immigrants to run his farms. And he said, if we don't have illegal immigrants, you know, like our industry is dead. So uh, maybe the industry is not dead, but irony certainly is. There were some really big stories that hit the news cycle this past week about election subversion. So tell us about what Trump said at the rally in Texas about pardons and the January 6th riot and why we should be so concerned about what he said. So what the president did, I mean, the president is kind of running the shadow campaign for 2024 where he's having these rallies. And um, if I, if my memory serves me correctly, he was like north of Houston uh, at some rally uh, where he was talking about the January 6th protesters. And I mean, look, Donald Trump has been deplatformed. Uh, the the cable news pl- you know channels don't give him that much play anymore. You know, he's not having a ton of rallies. He's not on social media. He has to launder it through people who work for him. Um, you know, with these kind of statements, uh, this before his Trump media network group or TMTG or whatever it is gets, it gets started. So Donald Trump weirdly is actually following the lead. I mean, maybe he was planting the seeds in the background and talking, uh, to Republican members of Congress, but he's really following the lead of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses and, and the other people who are insinuating that those who are in DC central prison are political prisoners. And, um, I think it's very dangerous for Republicans because look to anyone with half a brain, Donald Trump has always been very clear about every single thing he's wanted to do, whether it was overturning the election, which we can talk about in a little bit. But, uh, when it comes to these political prisoners, quote unquote, uh, it, it, it is evident to anyone who's just paid attention that like, they, of course, were going to go to the defense of the people who literally were assaulting police officers, committing felonies, breaking and entering into the Capitol, destroying federal property, and literally trying to obstruct Congress in its action to certify the results of the election. Um, and that, that's not even withstanding the you know fake electors and all of the other kind of stuff and the and the weird stuff that's gone on there. Um, but. Uh, I, I think it, it really is a Groundhog Day moment for, and I put this in my newsletter at the board, it's a Groundhog Day moment for Republicans because Donald Trump has never hid this. And congressional Republicans have always tried to kind of, you know, do this sort of two-step shuffle and say, well, it's not that bad. That's not exactly what he said. You know, he hasn't said anything, all this other kind of stuff. Donald Trump has always been explicit about this stuff. And he was explicit at his rally. And he said he wants to pardon these people, uh, which really is setting the groundwork for 2024. If Donald Trump were to not win the Electoral College vote, if he were not to win the popular vote, which he didn't either time, uh, these same types of people would probably try the same sort of thing. And Donald Trump is trying to telegraph this message to secretaries of state, to local county election people, to state legislators, to everyone that he's going to be term limited. And if you help get the friendly fascist in office, he's going to pardon you because there'll be no repercussions. And that's super scary. Um, And, you know, to see the quote unquote reasonable people like Susan Collins uh, you know, say, well, I'm undecided on him in 2024, to me, is just really befuddling. Uh, this is not a Republican Party that I work for. It's not a Republican Party I recognize. Um, and if you're not horrified, you should be. Sorry for the rant. So I mentioned there were multiple news stories about election subversion that came out this past week, and it wasn't just him floating the possibility of pardons at that rally, but also Uh, Trump putting out this statement saying he did want Pence to overturn the election. This is really unprecedented. Yes. And he used the word overturn multiple times in multiple statements. And I just don't understand, uh, you know, and it, it really saddens me. One of my high school classmates is a congressman right now, Anthony Gonzalez from Ohio 16th District. He's retiring. He's retiring. That's right. Yeah. And, and he was one of the 10 people who had the courage to to vote in the House. 
to, to remove Trump um, uh, or to send the trial to the Senate, if we're going to be a little bit more precise. And he just kind of was like, you know what? I've had enough of this. And uh, we have all of these other folks, ostensibly smart people, like people I kind of know and have run in circles with, like Chip Roy from Texas. And uh, I don't understand how it's like, are we watching the same movie? Right. You know, I mean, he's being explicit about all of this. And uh, apparently people like me and Bill Crystal and uh, Charlie Sykes, the people to bulwark or the people to dispatch were the ones with the derangement syndrome. And uh, I don't think we're watching the same movie here. You know, I never in my wildest dreams thought we'd be at this moment. Maybe I had too much faith in America. Maybe I had too much faith in democracy. But I never thought I'd see the day where we would see the head of one of our two major parties attacking democracy, undermining democracy, making just blatantly explicit authoritarian calls to overturn an election. Here's the the statement that former President Trump put out, quote, If the vice president, Mike Pence, had absolutely no right to change the presidential election results in the Senate, despite fraud and many other irregularities, how come the Democrats and rhino Republicans, like wacky Susan Collins, are desperately trying to pass legislation that will not allow the vice president to change the results of the election? Actually, what they are saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power he could have overturned the election, end quote. Now, obviously, the election wasn't stolen. All of those claims have been debunked. Um, When it comes to the Electoral Count Act, people want to make changes to that, not because they think the vice president has the power to overturn an election unilaterally. Um, That's completely undemocratic. That's authoritarian. They want to make changes so that nobody in the future abuses what really they don't think is a power that the vice president currently has. But you know, there are loopholes there. So they want to change that. But what's what's shocking about this statement is not those errors that he makes. It's that authoritarian language. Again, the head of one of our two major parties calling for the overturning of a free and fair election. That is alarming. It's as alarming as it gets. Now, another extremely troubling story that's been in the news this week is that former President Trump wanted to use the Department of Justice, the Pentagon, and the Department of Homeland Security to seize voting machines and seize voting records. Now, again, to me, this is a five alarm fire for democracy. When I hear seize voting machines, am I making too much of this, Jim? I mean, what was your reaction to this? Yeah. I mean, you got to think back to the 2000 election and the Brooks brothers brigade. They were not able to seize anything other than maybe the public narrative. Right. Um, and, um, I know, like I worked with a guy who was part of the Brooks brothers brigade, Rory Cooper. He, he's on the side of the angels now, but, uh, one of the other people on the Brooks brothers brigade, cause they did sort of a, where are they now at 20, uh, uh, two years ago is Matt Schlapp. Um, and you know, like it's, it is interesting to see, um, you know, how time has aged these folks, but that was a PR thing, you know, with Roger Stone and, and, you know, it was kind of Lee Atwatery and tactics back then. Um, but now uh, like he was, he had the power of the government and we're finding out all of this. And that is why I think people are so very scared of the January 6th committee on the right is because they fear that voters are going to find out the truth and we're finding it out in drips and drips and drips. I don't know. I mean, like I have a copy of the nine 11 commission report here in my office. If anyone else read it, I mean, I was I was a senior in college when 9-11 happened. Uh, I don't think most people read the Mueller report, you know, but uh, are people going to read the January 6th committee report? Um, but I, I'm really proud of the work the January 6th committee is doing. And I don't think that they're leaking this to the press. I think it's just kind of coming out. Um, I mean, they're 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 revealing certain things to the press, but like, I don't think that they're like showing any leg. Um but they are under they are under the clock here because two of their members, Adam Kinzinger uh, and Congresswoman Murphy from Florida, uh, are not running for re-election. They have to get this stuff done by the election. They have to get a report out by November, um, and it's going to be important. I think it's going to be a bombshell. But the question is, will the public care? 
So you bring up something that's really important that I want to address, which is, and you guys at the Bulwarks, I mean, several of your colleagues and yourself have made this point pretty strongly. And I think it's an important one, which is really what kept us, there's so much in the law and so much in our government that really is on the honor code, right? And so Mm -hmm. what kept us from falling into the abyss last time was people like Bill Barr having like some far flung line that he would not cross, right? And Mike Pence, thinking about it, right? And then deciding that he wasn't going to cross that line. So the point you just alluded to, which is, you know, a lot of those people are gone. We're normalizing a lot of things now that weren't normalized even back during the first administration. And the question is, like, where are those circuit breakers going to be next time, right? Yeah, I think that's the real worry. Because, um, I mean, we were also very critical of Bill Barr at the Bulwark. I mean, my old colleague, Andrew Egger, who now works at the Dispatch, and I think he's admitted he was wrong about this, was, you know, a little bit more open to bar when the rest of us were like, really? If the fate of the democracy, I mean, and what, what, what we found now is literally really the only guardrails that stopped Donald Trump were Bill Barr, Rudy Giuliani, of all people. And I forget which late night host was just like, if you know, if Rudy Giuliani is the guy who's just like, that's a bridge too far for me. Geez. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the guy who's like had, you know, fake hair dye dripping in front of a landscaping service in New York. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli, who is in his job, according to the GAO, illegally. Um, Mike Pence uh, and Mike Pence went to, of all people, Dan Quayle. If, if those are the guardrails of democracy this time, uh, I mean, it's 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 Jonathan Last, my boss, who's our editor at the, at the Bulwark, uh, wrote a really good piece. And it was that the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993 was a trial run. And that this attempted coup was a trial run for Trump. And we now know where all the failures were. And you see the failures by who Trump goes after. And they want to put people on those, you know, uh, election boards. They want to put people in those secretary of state's offices. Like it's, you know, it's like if you want to find out where the leak is in a, in a basketball, you just stick it underwater and you see where the air bubbles up. That's basically what this was. And now they know and they're trying to replace all of those people. And they still have two more years and one more electoral cycle, depending on whatnot, but a two-year electoral cycle, they still have time to do it. And it's scary. And, um, you know, as a lifelong conservative who spent all of his time working for Republicans, I just sort of ask my friends here, like, are we the ones that are deranged or are you the ones that are putting your heads in the sand? Um, Because, you know, like a boiling frog in a pot of water, usually it's too late by the time that you find that the water is boiling. Uh, So, you know, do some self-introspection because things are really, really bad. And if you want to do something about this, uh, do it uh, because we don't, we, we might have moral agency or consistency as never Trumpers, but we don't have the voice of the voters like you do. And there are so far few and in between people who are elected officials who are willing to go on record and say, this is messed up. This is bad. We need to do something about it. I mean, it's nice that like maybe some Republicans will, you know, join with Democrats on the Electoral Count Act reforms that are being done right now. Uh, but like, how many do you think we're talking about? 30 House Republicans, 10, sen- uh, 10 Senate Republicans. Uh, that's still a fraction of the federally elected Republicans um, because they know where their voters are and their voters are just behind Trump. And it's 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 it should be very worrisome. Um, if you care about our country. Yeah, I, I don't uh, put much stock in there being any penalty for any of this, but I yeah. mean, the, the phony electors are being investigated by the Department of Justice. And I see that there's a prosecutor in Georgia um, who's at least convened a grand jury to look at uh, the Raffensburger phone call. So, um, I mean, am I, am I um, completely being naive to think there'll be consequences here? No, I mean... The, the thing about Trump and Trumpism is that there it's sort of like don't tax, you know, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax that fellow behind the tree. When it comes to accountability, Trump always seems to avoid it. But uh, those who are doing his deeds tend to pay, you know, 
ask any person who's gone to jail, whether it's Cohen or, or, or others who've or Bannon, uh, you know, like those folks end up paying the piper and these local Republican elected officials in these states that are the fake electors, some of them may end up paying. Um, you know, I would love it if Donald Trump got paid, but you know, it's sort of John Oliver has this like meme where he pushes a button and the thing falls and people are dancing and it says, we got him. You know, everyone thinks that about Trump. He always escapes accountability and, you know, maybe he won't someday, but I'm not holding my breath there. But um, if you join a gang or if you join, you know, like some Sicilian brotherhood, you know, usually if you're at the lower end of the totem pole, you're more likely to pay. Well, I hope everyone understands just how much trouble our democracy is in. We mentioned on this show the possibility of pardons for the January 6th rioters, Trump admitting to wanting to overturn the election, the story about him wanting to seize voting machines. You add this to what we already knew about his administration's attack on democracy, the fake electors trying to get Georgia's secretary of state to, quote unquote, find votes to flip the state, pressuring local election officials to fabricate fraud, wanting to install Jeffrey Clark at the DOJ, bringing those Michigan officials to the White House to decertify the election and on and on. Uh, In the words of Michael Gerson, writing in The Washington Post, All of these actions by Trump are, quote, revealing the frightening fragility of the American experiment, end quote. Also writing in the Washington Post, Robert Kagan argued that we may be on the verge of the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War and quite possibly the suspension of American democracy as we have known it. You add all these actions by Trump to our ongoing problems of misinformation and disinformation, partisan media outlets, political polarization, Erosion of support for democracy across the country, weakening of social cohesion, low levels of political participation, government gridlock, dysfunction, uh, these authoritarian power grabs by state legislatures, threats to elected officials, threats to election workers. I mean, we're in serious trouble. Will Salatin wrote a piece in The Bulwark recently, and he noted that 94% of Democrats say that Trump has been undermining democracy, but 85% of Republicans say he's protecting it. Three quarters of Republicans say that President Biden did not legitimately win the election. 61% of Republicans say that Biden is illegitimate because fraudulent ballots supporting him were counted by election officials. 46% say ballots supporting Donald Trump were destroyed by election officials. 41% say voting machines were reprogrammed by election officials to count extra ballots for Biden. And 60% of Republicans say that in terms of violating the Constitution, the election was at least as bad as the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And two-thirds of those people, 43% of all Republicans, said the election was worse. We are in deep, deep trouble. And as far as I'm concerned, this is a five-alarm fire for democracy. And we've got to figure out a way to put it out. So, Jim, you tell me. From your perspective, how do we convince people? I mean, to me, this is overwhelming evidence that we are in real, real danger. How do you convince people that it's not just tribalism, that this is real? It depends. It depends on the audience and the specific person I'm talking to, of course. And I know that sounds like a you know relativism cop out. But the way I try and get people to understand my perspective, because if they don't understand your perspective, you're never going to be able to communicate with them and have a honest or legitimate conversation. And it's easy to dismiss never Trump Republicans, right? Oh, you know, you guys, you guys have been liberals your whole lives. That's not true. I mean, if your listeners could look at my wall, they would know it's not true. I mean, I can vouch for that. I can see his wall. This is, this is something I've done since 1999. Um, And it's, it's depressing, frankly, you know, like it, it literally, it legitimately depresses me. The whole movement that I spent my entire life working for just threw it away for the bad orange man. And then you'll say, oh, you call him the bad orange man. You've got Trump derangement syndrome. So what I try and do is try and get people to understand where I'm coming from. And you can ping them on policy. And this, a lot of it depends on their knowledge of policy, right? Um, and um, I think back to all the campaigns I worked for. And there's a difference between a campaign staffer and someone who works in an actual government office, right? So when I worked for the Bush-Cheney campaign, 
my understanding of things was way different than when I worked for a U.S. senator. And seeing how campaigns can simplify something to the point where it's deceptive, right? Uh, That's gotten way worse over time. I think most people, I mean, if you can talk to somebody who will be honest with you and say Donald Trump was a bad person, maybe even was a bad president, but the Dems are worse, right? You're talking to a much smaller audience. You know, there's the whole very small, never Trump audience on the right. Then there's an audience that will say, well, I didn't like his demeanor. I didn't like his behavior. I didn't like his tactics or whatever. That's also a small audience. And then there's a very large audience of people who are all cult worship. I'm not sure you can reach those people. I try and reach the people who may have voted for him once or maybe twice. And I talk to them and they realize that our party's in trouble because they don't like what Trump was about in his demeanor. And they see that people are emulating that and they don't like that. They don't like its continuance. So the first thing would be like, what did you expect would happen? But you don't want to blame them, even though it is indeed their fault uh, for going along with it. So what I try and ask them is, how do we get out of this? And this is a question I also ask my never Trump friends, too, because not everyone on the never Trump side uh, believes, like I do, that the best solution is to get rid of anyone who is part of this in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm not asking for purity here, but uh, if you were on the wrong side of the Mueller report, if you were on the wrong side of impeachment run, if you were on the wrong side of impeachment two, if you were on the wrong side of uh, overturning the electors, if you were on the wrong side of uh, having a January 6th committee, what business do you have being in a, the Republican Party? And there are people in the Never Trump movement who still think there are lots of good Republicans. And my question to them is, how many of them are there, really? Like, can you count them on both of your hands? Can you count them on your toes, too? Uh, Because after this next election cycle, I think I probably will be able to count them on one hand. Um, And, you know, how much are you willing to forgive? Um, I'm not very forgiving. And... That leads into this next question of, oh, are you saying you should vote for Democrats? No, I'm saying you should vote for people who are in your vote. I voted for Democrats in the Senate and the House and in the president last election because Rob Whitman, the first Republican congressman whose district I've ever lived in in my entire life, was wrong on all of those things, pretty much. And I was happy to vote against him. But due to redistricting, I'm in a new district and Abigail Spanberger, who is a moderate blue dog Democrat, will hopefully be my new congresswoman. I'm happy to vote for her. But at the end of the day, yes, will Democrats overreach just like Republicans did? And the, the goal is how do you rebuild? How do you get people in? And I think the answer is finding out whether or not someone wants to give a second chance to the Susan Collinses of the world who have already seen so many things and have been wrong and wrong again and literally had Donald Trump spit in her eye pretty much multiple times. Or do you just say, we can't have those people anymore. And if the Democrats have to take over power and screw up and then, you know, be held to account by voters for their excesses, is that such a bad thing? I mean, Republicans controlled all forms of government when Donald Trump won. Now, they couldn't get anything done because they don't care about legislating. At least this modern iteration of the Republican Party doesn't. Um, but my view is get rid of all of them uh, who are part of it. And if you disagree, I'm interested in hearing what your theory is. And that's sort of what I do is my sort of like pH balance test of someone's sanity. Um, because if you just want to pretend that nothing happened or it was all kayfabe like wrestling, um, I'm just going to conclude you're not a serious person. Jim Swift, I love having you as a guest on the show. Uh, I know we'll have you back again soon in the future. So, Jim, thanks for joining the program today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Mr. President, today was heartbreaking. And, uh, and I was shaken to the core as I thought about the people I met in China and Russia and Afghanistan and Iraq and other places who yearn for freedom and who look to this building and these shores as a place of hope. And I saw the images being broadcast around the world and it breaks my heart. 
I have 25 grandchildren. Many of them were watching TV, thinking about this building, whether their grandpa was okay. I knew I was okay. I must tell you as well, I was proud to serve with these men and women. This is an extraordinary group of people. I'm proud to be a member of the United States Senate and meet with people of integrity as we do here today. Now we gather due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Fairly or not, they'll be remembered for their role in this shameful episode in American history. That will be their legacy. I salute Senator Langford and Leffler and Braun and Danes, and I'm sure others, who in the light of today's outrage have withdrawn their objection. For any who remain insistent on an audit in order to satisfy the many people who believe that the election was stolen, I'd offer this perspective. No congressional audit is ever going to convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who are upset is by telling them the truth. That's the burden. That's the duty of leadership. The truth is that President-elect Biden won the election. President Trump lost. I've had that experience myself. It's no fun. <laughs> Scores of courts, the president's own attorney general, state election officials, both Republican and Democrat, have reached that unequivocal decision. And in light of today's sad circumstances, I ask my colleague, do we weigh our own political fortunes more heavily than we weigh the strength of our republic, the strength of our democracy, and the cause of freedom? What's the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of conscience? Leader McConnell said that the vote today is the most important in his 36 years of public service. Think of that. Authorizing two wars, voting on two impeachments. He said that not because the vote reveals something about the election, it's because this vote reveals something about us. I urge my colleagues to move forward with completing the electoral count, to refrain from further objections, and to unanimously affirm the legitimacy of the presidential election. Thank you, Mr. President. There's a chapel in Kansas standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it's what connects us. And we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground so we can get there we can make it to the mountaintop through the desert and we will cross this divide our light has always found its way through the darkness and there's hope 
on the road up ahead. Betrayals to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Till we meet again Trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.